0: Well, welcome to Nets course number two, Disciples of the Lord Jesus. This is session seven, and the title is Categories of God's Gifts. Now, in Acts chapter 5, verse 32, it says that the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him, when we're obedient, God gives us blessings and gives us gifts. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, he included the whole world in that verse. After the Holy Spirit came, then the the word was going to go out and it's still going out. And perhaps where you're hearing this, you may be in one of those places. You're certainly, if you're not in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, then you're in the uttermost part of the earth. (laughs) You're out there. That's where we are. Well, power comes. You shall receive power. There's authority that comes through obedience. When we obey God, He gives us authority to act on His behalf. He gives us authority to be utilized in this world, on this earth. Now, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, it says, As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So we receive the gifts by grace, and we should be ministering to one another. Now, when Peter was speaking on the day of Pentecost, in Acts 2.38, he said, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is a gift to us. When we're saved, born again... We receive a gift at that point. It's the gift of eternal life, but it's the gift of Holy Spirit. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the Holy Spirit is given as a gift, which is eternal life, which is a gift. Now, there is one gift that we receive but there are three different categories or expressions of the gift. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 4 through 6, we see these different categories spoken of. In verse 4, it says, There are diversities or differences of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are diversities of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. In these three categories, you could say the gifts of the Spirit, the gifts of the Lord Jesus and the gifts of the Father, God. The first category, the gifts of the Spirit, we've looked at, and we're going to look at it just briefly again, is, are in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The second category, the gifts that the Lord Jesus has given, are listed in Ephesians chapter 4 and those other gifts which God has implanted and imparted within everyone are listed in Romans 12. Now, I call these first ones in Romans chapter 12 manifestational because it says in verse 7, But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, another faith by the same Spirit, another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the workings of miracles, another prophecy to another, discerning of spirits, another, different kinds of tongues, another, the interpretation of tongues. But one in the self-same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. Now, as a list, there are nine of them. Nine in Scripture is the number for the Holy Spirit. It also happens to be the number for judgment. But in this case, we're talking about The manifestations, which are gifts of the Spirit, empowerments of God's grace. They are word of wisdom, word of knowledge, faith, gifts of healing, working of miracles, prophecy, discerning of spirits, kinds of tongues, and interpretation of tongues. You'll notice that one of these is in the plural. That's gifts of healings. And that's because when we pray for someone to be healed and they're healed, that's a gift given to them, when we pray for them to be healed again, perhaps of something different or perhaps of something similar, nevertheless, they're, they're healed again, they've received it, a gift of healing again. Sometimes we're healed of something, for instance, let's say a cold, and a week later we get a cold again, we say, Lord, I thought you healed me of that. Well, He did heal you. You have another cold, so get healed of that one too. <laughs> so, But those are gifts of healings. Now, in verse 11, we read that one and the self-same spirit works in all these things, distributed to each one individually. King James says, severally. But it's the word personally. When we read about that the scripture is of no private interpretation, that's the word one's own. The scripture is not of any personal interpretation, but it has to be interpreted according to itself. That's the same word, idios. He distributes to each one personally according to His will. When we place ourselves in a position where it's His will, then we receive those blessings. In a sense, I think I've used the example of the cookie jar, where God has a cookie jar and He puts these nine cookies in there and we reach in. Once we receive it, it's always His will that we can manifest those at any time. Others of those... When we reach in, we are operating that manifestation. However, we don't always manifest that manifestation unless there's faith involved. For instance, healing or miracles. We have got to operate that. We've got to step into that place or we'll never manifest it. On the other hand, sometimes we step in that place, and the conditions are still not correct for it to be manifested in this earth. But we have got to step into that place. We've got to reach in there, to see if something's there. Then, the next ones I call motivational. And there are five of them. Five being the number for grace. Ephesians 4, And He Himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some shepherds and teachers, for the equipping, which is the word perfecting, of the saints for the work of ministry, and for the edifying of the body of Christ, that the man of God might be perfect, completely furnished unto every good work. Our goal with these motivational gifts is that we would see the men of God and the women of God perfected, that they would be equipped unto every good work. We want to motivate, we have to equip. We're perfecting the body of Christ. These five were given as the Lord sat down at the right hand of God. Now we remember the nine that are given by the same Spirit come from the Greek word charis, which is grace. So there's grace involved in those. Now this, the word for gift used in Ephesians chapter 4, is a different word. However, there are five. So once again, he is still emphasizing these things come by grace. Now these are a little different. In that these five gifts are not gifts to an individual, but these are the gifts of an individual's life to the church. These are the gifts of Jesus Christ continuing His ministry of one or more of these five through an individual's life to the church. So, for instance, if we have the gift of a teacher ministering, then it is the Lord Jesus continuing His ministry of a teacher through a person's life whom He has chosen to give to the church. If we have a shepherd, then it's someone whom the Lord has chosen to continue His ministry of the shepherd, through that person to the church. And so it would be with any of these. Now, you'll notice what I read to you there is a little different than what your Bible probably says, because I substituted a word. Some were given to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some shepherds. Now, it happens to be, in most Bibles, it says pastors. So we have apostles, we have prophets, we have evangelists, we have shepherds and teachers. Now, The reason I substitute the word shepherd is because that is a proper translation of that particular Greek word. It's interesting to note that the word pastor is not in the New King James Bible at all. It's not in the New International Version at all. And in the King James it's only found once. That's interesting. Now what we do find at times is the word pastors, plural. And right here in Ephesians chapter 4 is the only time where we find that word translated pastors in the New Testament. Every other place where it's utilized, it's the word shepherds. And I think that's important that we use the word shepherd because we're talking about a gift here. We're not talking about a position. And what has happened over the years is we have substituted the word pastor for a position of leadership or eldership in the church, which biblically is a word translated elder, bishop, or overseer. And because we have substituted the name of a gift for the title of a position, we have, without knowing it, without intending to, added confusion to the understanding of the manifestation of the gifts to the body. So the reason that I try to utilize the word shepherd when I'm talking about the gift, it's to clarify that I'm talking about the gift. And I'll try to do that uh, whenever I'm speaking. Now often when I'm with a group of leaders, it's almost necessary to use the word pastor. So I will use the word pastor when I'm talking about church leaders because that's the common usage. However, biblically speaking, those men would be elders regardless of whether they're apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, or teachers. We just happen to lump them together and call them pastors because of tradition. But traditions can be wrong. The Word of God is never wrong. So, we have shepherds. Now, then there's the inspirational gifts. And these are seven that I see in Romans chapter 12, 6 through 9. And these, I believe, are talents which are given at birth. And the relationship is to the spirit of man in an individual, which can be influenced and inspired by the Holy Spirit once a person is born again. And these may mature into ministries. But these are the gifts that God places within every single human being. And every single human being has some gifting. There's something, whether it's been discovered or not, every single human being has been giving some form of gifting, which is in this category. For instance, we say this person is really gifted because they can play the piano, or they're really gifted because they can sing. They may not even be born again. They may not even be a Christian, and yet we know they're gifted in that area because we receive it, and it it blesses us when we receive it. Now, those gifts that are natural gifts, natural talents, can also be used for evil. But once a person is saved, we can take those natural gifts and submit them to the Holy Spirit, and they can be empowered by the Holy Spirit and bring great blessings. Now, let's look at what it says here in Romans 12 beginning of verse 6, "...having then gifts differing according to the grace that has been given to us." Once again, we see grace. Now, this is grace that is given to every human being. Life itself is a gift of grace. Let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching. He who exhorts in exhortation. He who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, and cling to that which is good. So he lists these. And after he lists these seven, after each one he says, let's utilize them correctly. Now, you can say prophecy is the first one. Now how can a person who's not saved have a gift of prophecy? Well, We know that there are false prophets who have a gift of prophecy, but it's motivated and inspired by a wrong spirit. So there are those that have a natural ability in this area. But I believe that the proper way to look at this in this category is in light of perception. When we see the prophet, the ministry of the prophet in Ephesians chapter 4, we know that's an office in the church. When we see the ability to manifest prophecy in the church in 1 Corinthians 12, we know it's another category. So when we see it here, we have to recognize yet another category considered prophecy. And here's what we see. Since we're talking about the natural abilities that are attached to the spirit of man here, that could be functioning even before a person is saved, then when we see this, we have to see that perception. And this is the kind of person whom you may have known who notices things and then speaks out the truth about them. Now, sometimes he or she may speak things about that perception, and it may not bring good blessings. It may not bring blessings at all. But they're a perceptive person, and they'll notice things about other people. They may not say it to the person. They may say it behind their back. But they're in that category. They have a gift in this area, and it could be utilized by the Holy Spirit if they were saved. I think we've all met somebody like that. Some of us may have that gift. It doesn't mean that we necessarily prophesy edification, exhortation, and comfort, but we see things, we perceive things, and then we speak out words because of what we've perceived. I believe that's what we're seeing here. Ministry. If we have this gift of ministry, let us use it in our ministry. Ministry simply means service. There are those that have a gift of service. Are we all supposed to be servants? You bet. But some people just have a gift of service. Teacher. There are some people that have a gift of teaching. They don't necessarily have to be saved. If they become saved and the Holy Spirit begins to energize this natural talent, we can receive a great blessing from this person. This is not at the level of an Ephesians 4:11 teacher. However, Many Ephesians 4.11 teachers would have a natural gift of teaching which the Holy Spirit would choose to energize. Exhortation, to encourage, to exhort. There are people that are just naturally positive, that naturally will bring out the good in you, even though they may not be saved. That's a gift. If they're saved, the Holy Spirit begins to energize this. Then they begin to encourage people onto more worthy endeavors for God. A giver, someone who has a gift of giving. There are people that have the gift of giving. Philanthropists. They give. Many of them receive their reward now because they give for the purpose of being noticed now. So men and women will see. However, they, have, they take great joy in giving. Once they would become saved, that same gift could be now utilized and great blessings could come to us and those of us that might receive of that but their reward will then be in heaven. They have the gift of liberality. Leader. There are those that have a gift of leadership or gift of administration. If that's inspired then by the Holy Spirit, then we have a natural leader who has now submitted that natural ability to the Holy Spirit. This person would be a wonderful person to have in an eldership role within the church. Mercy. A gift of mercy. Someone who is compassionate, just naturally compassionate. We have people that are naturally compassionate in fields of hospitality, of nurses, doctors, teachers, many fields that just naturally people are drawn to them, to uh, good works and to help, to feeding the poor and so on, that just have a gift of mercy. They're very compassionate people. They may not be saved. If they become saved, then the Holy Spirit begins to energize that gift, then they come into a place of compassion, and leave a place of sympathy. I often like to say that sympathy just drains our wallet, but compassion many times brings us to a place of miracles. Well, so we have these different categories, but one gift. The Holy Spirit can energize all these. Some of these are given by the Holy Spirit, some by the Lord Himself, and some by the Father God, even as we're born. But now we need to go from having the gift or from being called into the gift to actually walking out in it. And I call this from calling to commissioning because we all receive a calling. We've all received a gift and there's a calling that comes with that gift. But let's say we recognize we have a certain gift in a certain area. Does that mean now that Today, we're going to begin to walk in the fullness of that. No. There are many examples in Scripture. John the Baptist, 30 years of training for a six-month ministry. Jesus Himself, 30 years of training before He entered into ministry. David was called out when he was 17 years old and anointed as king, but it was many years before he actually became king. He had the anointing of the king and the calling of a king when he was very young. But... He went right back to doing what he was doing it, but now he did it as a king in training. And in time then he received another anointing and he became the king over Judah. And then later he became the king over all Israel. But the calling was there early on, but the commissioning came in time and in God's preparation. Joseph had a call. He had a vision. He shared it with his father. He shared it with his brothers. There was a calling that came with that vision but it was many years before he actually stepped into it, and in a sense, God commissioned him now to carry it out. Between the calling and the commissioning, there's going to be a test. There's going to be a period of time. How long? How much of a test? That's up to God. We do know that many times we sell ourselves short because our calling is larger than we think it is. And so therefore, we expect our commission to come sooner than probably it should. It may be that the longer it takes before we're commissioned, the greater our calling is. Well, there are different stages from calling to commissioning, and each step is as important as the last. But there are stages which may be more critical to success. Proverbs eighteen sixteen says, A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. What I like to remind people is, a man's gift should make room for him. It should not be the man making room for his gift. If we have a gift, let's utilize it to bless others. Let's do it in order to bless with the motivation of love, as we saw in Romans twelve nine that we should love without hypocrisy. We should take what God has given us and use it to bless others, not for any selfish motivation. In time, as we operate our gifts room will be made for that gift. But if we, on the other hand, go and begin to try to form a place for ourselves, we've got it backwards. I'll tell you a little story along this line. One time I was uh, praying because I felt like the Lord was holding me back. In other words, I I felt like I was being obedient to wait upon the Lord, but I, I wondered why He was causing me to wait when I saw others going ahead into their callings. And I was wondering why I was having to wait. And he showed me a vision. And in the vision, I saw myself and someone else. And we were standing at the on-ramp to an interstate. We were hitchhiking. And cars came by and passed us and didn't pick us up. And we were both getting frustrated because of the wait. So after a while, the other person that was there decided to walk on his own. And so he started to walk down the highway and that represented someone who did not wait upon the Lord, but tried to make room for his gift as opposed to letting the gift make room for him. But even though I was frustrated because I wasn't getting picked up, I still waited by that on ramp. And after time went by, I watched that other person walk away and get smaller and smaller and smaller as they walked away until they were a dot in the distance and disappeared. And to my mind, it seemed as though that person was making progress and I was being left behind. But yet, still, I waited. And after it seemed like hours, finally, I was picked up. And when I was picked up, within just a few minutes, we were past where that person had walked and then surpassed where he had walked. And what the Lord showed me in that is that by making room for ourselves... It may appear for a time that we're making progress while others who are being patient waiting on the Lord may be held back. But in reality, when it's time, God will pick you up and move you faster and further than you could ever go by your own abilities. So we need to wait on Him. We need to have endurance and patience and allow Him to do His perfect work because He is perfectly able to perform in us that which He's called us to do. Now in Luke chapter 14, I believe you see this. In verse 8 through 11, Jesus gives the example about a man going to a wedding feast and picking the best place to sit. But he says, Jesus says, don't pick the best place and sit there because you may be asked to move because that spot may be saved for someone else. And how embarrassing would it be for you to be sitting in that special place and then in front of everyone to be asked, would you mind Uh, this seat is reserved for someone else? But in verse 10, he says, But when you're invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and who humbles himself will be exalted. I think Jesus has given us a principle. Many are called, but few are chosen. We do need to understand we are called. We do need to be commissioned, but we have to have patience and be humbled so that He can exalt us in due time. It's got to be in His time. In Luke chapter 16, is a familiar verse that we've looked at before, beginning in verse 10, "...He who is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust true riches?" And if you've not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? The context there, of course, one of the contexts is, is money, but the other is ministry. And we want to move into our own calling. But we've got to be faithful where the Lord places us at first. We should be grateful that He's working with us and training us and giving us a place to grow. The principle that I like to give in light of this whole process from calling to commissioning. I call it the rah-rah principle, but just R-A-R-A. Many people teach that authority comes from revelation, and there is truth to that. But what we don't seem to always teach people is that authority doesn't come directly at the time of revelation usually, but usually there's a process. And that process usually goes like this. Revelation, a vision comes. There's a calling that begins. But then, accountability must come. We bring that calling, that vision, that revelation, and we submit it. We become accountable through relationship. Now, we begin to grow. As we grow in relationship through accountability, we are given more responsibility. With responsibility, release begins to happen. As we begin to release, as we've proven ourselves responsible, authority is transferred. When we begin to walk in authority, commissioning begins. So first comes the revelation or the vision, but then must come accountability. Then through accountability comes responsibility. By responsibility comes authority. Many people have been sidetracked and gotten hurt and sometimes discouraged and sometimes even bitter because we haven't understood the process. We've wanted to go straight from revelation to walking in authority. but There's a process with everything. And if Jesus Christ Himself submitted to this process, then shouldn't we also? Now in 1 Peter 5, verse 6, it says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time. There's a figure of speech here, I believe, given to us for teaching. When it says the mighty hand of God. Of course, we have five fingers on our hand. And as we saw back in Ephesians chapter 4, we have five ministries which are given to motivate us, to equip us and perfect us in the body of Christ so that we can have saints that are functioning and equipped for service. And I believe we can see in this verse... By humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God, we're seeing as a figure to humble ourselves under those ministries which God has given to help raise up the saints to do works of service. It's like the Father's loving hand that comes and gives us a pat and encourages us. Sometimes pats us a little lower when we've done wrong. (laughs) Whom the Father loves, He chastens. How does He chasten us many times? Through the, the gifts to the church. How does He encourage us? Through the gifts to the church. But when we humble ourselves and we become accountable like this, then we're in the process that God has desired for His people. And He allows us then to, to be grown up. We're faithful with what is another man, so then He's able to give us our own, which is His goal. Remember, as we've said before, though, He is just as interested in the process as He is in the product. Now, just quickly to explain the five ministries the ascension gifts, often called the five-fold ministries. As the hand, you see the apostle being in a representative form, the thumb, the pointer finger, the prophet, the middle finger, the evangelist, the ring finger, the shepherd, and the little finger, the teachers. Just as an example, for teaching purposes, this is a good way to look at it. The prophet is the one that points the way. He points the way for the body of Christ, shows the vision of where the Lord wants us to go. But even as he points the way, it's like we have the saying, be careful when you point one finger because you point three back at yourself. And the Bible does say that out of the mouth of two or three witnesses will every word be established. And it says that when the prophets speak, that their words should be judged. And so when the prophet points the way, we need that. But we also understand there needs to be a humility with the prophet that the words will be judged. And even how to apply those words needs to be judged so that we can all move with the blessings of God. So that's the prophet. Then there's the middle finger, which is the evangelist. And the evangelist is the one that goes off into the far countries and he goes out the furthest of any of the others and he reaches the furthest out, reaching the lost bringing the good news of the gospel. Then you have the ring finger, and there you have the shepherd. In a sense, the shepherd is married to the flock, but he's also the one that marries the flock to the Lord Jesus, brings them into that close relationship. His job is not to teach or to prophesy necessarily. His job is to bring the flock, to gather the flock into that place of the wedding feast where the lamb is. And then you have the little finger, which is the teacher. The teacher is the one finger that's small enough to reach in and clean out our ears so we can hear the truth. Faith can come by hearing. And then you have the apostle who doesn't really fit with any of those, but at the same time, it's the one that can touch all of them. And whereas these may sometimes be in opposition to each other, with the thumb operating, the hand can work together. It can grab. It can be a force. There's an authority there that isn't there without the thumb. The thumb can't do much by itself, but with the others, it can really bring everything together, which is what the apostle can do. There's strength in that thumb, but it's not designed to work separately from any of the others. But in reality, it's meant to bring all of them together. Now, there's two categories of commissioning. One is the gifts, and one is positions, and it's important that we separate these so we understand how these function in the church. Many times you'll see in Scripture that apostles ordained people into positions. Apostles ordained elders in the church, in the early church. But yet you saw prophetically, either by prophets or prophetic presbytery, gifts were called out, were commissioned in people. So we need both the apostles and the prophets having those functions because it's upon that foundation that we have both gifts and positions working in the church, and we need both. Now the gifts we've looked at here tonight, they are commissioned prophetically, and they have the motivational, which is the fivefold, the inspirational, which is the seven, and the manifestational, which is the nine. These are gifts that are given by grace. Grace. Then we have within the positions within the church, and there can be many, but these are commissioned apostolically. It's a function of the apostle to commission the positions. Now, many places we may not have apostles, and we haven't had apostles functioning. Sometimes we've had them functioning and haven't called it that, but nevertheless, wherever we have positions being commissioned, that is an apostolic function. So the positions are commissioned apostolically. And even if there's not an apostle present to commission, it's still an apostolic function that's being utilized to commission those positions. In the positions, what we see and what we're looking for is not necessarily gifting. Although we would love to have gifted people in our positions, what we're looking for in positions is character. And the issues that are in Scripture in terms of the positions in the church are that they should be submitted. They should be humble. They need to be blameless. They need to have order in their family. They have to be proven, tested and proven. They must be able to be an example unto others. They have to be a good steward with a good testimony towards even those that are without. They have to be sober. They have to be temperate, hospitable, not covetous. They have to have boldness to teach. They have to be able to exhort. They have to be able to convince. And they have to have knowledge of the faithful word. Does this mean that this person has to have the gift of a teacher? No. They just have to have boldness when they teach. And they have to teach correctly. Does that mean because this person has to be hospitable that they have to be a person that has the gift of hospitality? No. Certainly that would be helpful, but that's not a requirement. They have to be hospitable but that gift doesn't have to be there. They have to be able to exhort. They don't necessarily have to have the gift of exhortation, but that would certainly be used if they had that gift. So we'll have people in positions who have the gift of exhortation, and certainly they'll excel in that area. They have the gift of hospitality that will excel in that area. That have a gift of teaching, and they'll excel in that area. But yet, if we're in these positions, we have to be able to at least be able to function in all these areas. Now, one thing I want you to understand in light of the process from calling to commissioning is we have to make a decision to go towards our commission. We have to make a decision to receive the call. We can hear it and not accept it. But if we'll hear it and accept it, then we have made a decision, and that's how faith works. We first make the decision... Abraham went out, it says, not knowing where he went. He obeyed and he went out, even though he didn't have all the answers. The Lord told me one time that I don't need to understand in order to obey, but that if I waited until I always understood before I obeyed, then I would wait back while others went forward in obedience. Sometimes we go forward in obedience And the understanding comes after. Commitment precedes mission in order to have commission. We have to have that commitment and we have a commission. We have to have the attitude like Isaiah did. Here I am, send me. I think of that in Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah in verse 1, it says that he saw the Lord sitting on the throne high and lifted up. The train of his robe was filling the temple. And he describes what he saw and how awesome it was. He fell. (laughs) He fell before the Lord because he realized what a sinner he was. And verse 5. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar and touched my mouth with it, and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged. You see, we're all going to see the fire. (laughs) His sin was purged. Then it says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. There has to be that coming to the Lord and realizing that we need His help. Once we come to the realization, that with all our gifts and all our callings, we can't do without Him, that we need His grace. When we come to that place where we fall before Him, that when He lifts us up, we say, Here am I, send me. Then we're at a point now where we're ready to be utilized by the Lord. When we come to that place, when we realize, woe is me, I am undone. Then we have come to a good place because we have undone all our abilities. We have undone all our preconceived notions. And we've come to a place where the Lord has to act in us or we can do nothing. And then we say, here I am. And we receive the calling. And then we can be prepared to be sent out. Wow. Then reality sets in. We see the vision clearly. We've accepted the call. I think sometimes when we come idealistically, we have all our thoughts of how it should work. But in reality, idealism is the enemy of revelation. What we need is the Lord's vision, because what He gives works. What we think it should be and how we think it should be sometimes is in opposition to the way He says it's going to be. We need a revelation. We need His vision, so He'll give us His provision. We'll understand that we need that determination, that endurance. Many times we come into a position as human beings where we feel we've had a vision, we feel we know what's going on, we feel we know what needs to be done. But then there's a rejection that comes, or there's a, something that comes in our way to keep that from happening, and often it's a person. With rejection comes an opportunity for forgiveness, to extend forgiveness. If we don't extend forgiveness, we put ourselves in a position of keeping that rejection and entering into a place of bitterness. With bitterness comes rebellion. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. So we have a choice. We can be determined and we can endure. We can be a disciple, which discipleship requires that we extend forgiveness. If we'll do that, we will endure. If we won't, we'll have the counterfeit to endurance, which is rebellion. And when we become rebellious, it's impossible for us to submit. It's impossible for us to become accountable in the things that we need to become accountable to. We'll begin to sidetrack the calling of God that He has placed on us. Rebellion is generally caused through unhealed wounds which exist in the presence of unforgiveness. I've said it before, but I'd like to repeat it. God is at least as interested in the process as He is in the product. The process is our perfecting. We are being perfected. It's for our own good as well as the good of others that that process be completed as we go. In reality, our commissioning is just a part of that process. Because even after we receive the commissioning, we are still being perfected. We still have a course to finish. But if we enter into that commissioning prematurely, we could sidetrack the plans of God. I think it was Albert Einstein who said, there's nothing more detrimental than premature success. There's a strength that comes through endurance. I remember the story of a man who found a butterfly coming out of the cocoon. And it was struggling and struggling, trying to come out of that cocoon. It would it would struggle for a while and it would stop and it would have to rest. It almost seemed like it was dying. And then it would struggle again, it would get part way out, and it would use up all its energy and it would stop. After a while he began to have uh, Sympathy for this uh, butterfly. And so he took out a little blade and and carefully cut that cocoon to let the butterfly out. And And the butterfly came out very quickly. And then after a short time, died. Couldn't fly away. Well, it disturbed this man. He did some checking and found out that it's in the process of the struggle of coming out of that cocoon that the butterfly grows the strength that it needs in order to fly away. So by cutting that struggle short, he doomed that butterfly to a premature death. Sometimes a premature success is not success at all. But it dooms us to not fulfilling the call that God has made us to. The struggle itself many times is is the process of preparing us for our ultimate call. Well, to walk by the Spirit is to manifest the fruit of the Spirit not the manifestations of the Spirit. We do need to manifest the Spirit. We do need to have the gifts of the Spirit. But if we're walking by the Spirit, what will be manifested is the fruit. The manifestations may never supersede Scripture. 2 Peter 1.19, as the Apostle Peter was relating his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration, probably one of the most miraculous visions that ever happened and were recorded in Scripture, where Three of the apostles saw the same thing as the Lord was transformed before them, and they were there with Moses and Elijah, seeing them in glory. And yet, speaking of this, he says, and I'll quote it from the King James, we have a more sure word of prophecy. (laughs) The scripture is a more sure word of prophecy than even that. It never changes. The things we may experience through the Spirit, and by the Spirit, can never supersede Scripture. Now, there are times when they may appear to contradict Scripture, but they would never contradict Scripture. When Peter was on the rooftop, and he saw the vision, and down came the sheet with all the different animals and all the different foods, and God said to him, Don't call the things that I've called clean, unclean. To his mind, that contradicted Scripture, but in reality it didn't, because in the Old Testament it talked about God was going to go to other sheep. He was going to go to the Gentiles. He was going to have a new covenant. It's just that they had overlooked those scriptures. And what God was doing through the manifestation of the Spirit by revelation was trying to get them to go back and look at what it said in Scripture. So then he went down to to, uh, Caesarea. And the Holy Spirit fell on Cornelius and his whole household. Still, I'm sure that Peter hadn't figured it all out. He was still observing what the Spirit was doing. But when you see the Spirit do it, He had to take it back, and it, it began to see. Oh, and then He went back to Jerusalem, and, and when He spoke to the elders, He said, "'Then I remembered, then I recall.'" You see, the Spirit will bring all things to our remembrance, what Jesus Christ spoke. He'll bring all things to our remembrance, what the Holy Spirit has written down. We may receive something that appears contradictory, but it cannot contradict Scripture, if it's from the author of Scripture. The Ten Commandments are still in season. They don't change. They're summed up in Jesus' New Testament commandments, and we still keep them. Let me go back and look in the Old Testament, the commandments that Jesus used to sum up the Law and the Prophets. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Leviticus 19, 18. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, and these are quoted a number of times by Jesus in different places. But Let's look at it in Mark, chapter 12, beginning in verse 29. Jesus answered him, The first of all commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now here we see one of those foundational doctrines of Christ. This is foundational. Just as foundational as do unto others as you would have them do unto you. These are the foundational teachings of Christ that we never can leave. Those are things that we as Christians, we always can build on and need to build on those. We can't leave those. We have to grow up from them. We need to mature, but we're still building on those foundational teachings. While we're here speaking about these two commandments, Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two forty, On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. It's very interesting that when Jesus was on that Mount of Transfiguration, there was Moses, and there was Elijah. There was the Spirit of the Law, and there was the Spirit of the Prophets there. And then there was the Spirit of the New Testament, which is the Spirit of the Resurrection, which is Jesus Christ. And they were seeing Him in His glorified state, even before He was crucified. But they were seeing Him as we're going to see Him. Glorified as the Fulfiller of the Law and the Prophets. Well, I'd like to look a little bit more closely though here in Mark. Because back in Deuteronomy we saw we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our strength. And that relates to our spirit, our soul, and our body. All our heart in that context is speaking about our spirit, our soul, speaking about our soul life. And our strength is the word might, meaning our physical body should serve the Lord. So our whole complete being should be worshiping God. Should be loving God. But here we see in Mark and in other places where the Lord spoke about this, he added something. And I think there's a reason for that. In Mark 12, 30, he says, You should love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So he added with all your mind. Now we know that mind really is in the category of the soul. Often the word the words in the Greek are interchanged. But I believe there's a reason that Jesus was adding that in this context. He's not saying that now we have a fourth part, although there is a breadth and length and depth and height to those that are spiritual. But I believe what he was doing was emphasizing the mind because it's the renewed mind that's our key to transformation. He was coming to bring new life. He was coming to bring a new start. And so he was saying, look, We've always had the need to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our strength. By saying, with all our mind, I believe what he was doing was giving us a beginning point to come back and take care of those three areas, to love God by renewing our mind, by putting on the mind of Christ to be transformed. Now, as we're thinking of, Uh, here and mentioning some of these foundational doctrines of Jesus Christ, elementary teachings of Christ, I'm thinking again of Hebrews chapter 6, 1 and 2, where we see the seven different foundational doctrines of the church listed there. One of them is the doctrine of baptisms. And I I want to just begin to look at some of these, at the doctrine of baptisms. There are at least 12 baptisms named in the New Testament. Now some of these are descriptions of the same baptism named more than once under different names. There are at least 12 different names of baptisms, but there's not necessarily 12 different baptisms. These 12 different names condense into five different categories of baptisms, each with a separate purpose. Now there was John's baptism, which was a baptism unto repentance. It was a baptism in water, and it looks very similar to being baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. But Jesus' baptism, as we're going to see, was a baptism into forgiveness. John came to call them into repentance. Remember when the Pharisees came and they wanted to be baptized because everybody else was getting baptized, and then he said, look, you brood of vipers, show me some fruit that proves you've repented. So His baptism was a baptism of repentance. Now Jesus' baptism was also in water and was similar in appearance. But the difference was, was Jesus had the ability to forgive sins. So when we're baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus, it's a baptism of forgiveness. Now there's also a baptism of suffering. Jesus was baptized into suffering. In some sense, Jesus bore that baptism alone. But even Paul said that he wanted to enter into the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings. So he wanted to even partake of that to the best of his ability. There's also the baptisms of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. the Baptisms of fire, water, and spirit, and the baptisms of the soul, the body, and the spirit. Now, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, we read, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Now, once again, the Bible cannot contradict itself. So here we've just looked at all these different baptisms, and yet, It says here there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now, how can that be? Well, the Bible doesn't contradict itself, so there's got to be an explanation, and there is. Now, in Matthew 22, verses 43 and 44, it says, He said to them, How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So here you have at least two Lords, And yet, in Ephesians chapter 4, it said, there's one Lord. Now, how can that be? Because we have to understand, the Lord our God is one Lord. Right? Hear, O Israel, we need to understand this. He's one Lord. Now, there's the Father, there's the Son, and there's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is Lord in the church. Jesus Christ is the Lord over the church, and the Father is the Lord over all but they never contradict and always function together, so there's one Lord when they come together. The one Lord has three personalities. The one Lord manifests the Lordship in three different avenues. Now, 1 Corinthians 15, 27, For He has put all things under His feet, but when He says all things are put under Him, it is evident that He who put all things under Him is accepted. God the Father, the Lord, put our Lord in charge of everything until He makes the enemies the footstool of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what about one faith? As a review, Romans 1.17. For in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Well, if we're going from faith to faith, we have at least two faiths, but we we really know that there's three. Because there is faithfulness, which relates to our body. Even your dog can be faithful, right? But he cannot have faith. But then there's our faith, which is tied with our soul. Every human being has faith for something. It's that faith that brings us in a position to receive the grace of salvation. By grace you are saved, through faith, right? You're saved by your faith. When someone would come to Jesus and they would be healed, what would He say to them? Your faith has made you whole. Now obviously Jesus had something to do with that. Their faith brought them to a place of receiving the blessings from the Lord Jesus, even to this day. A non-saved person receives salvation by their faith. So there's that faith that is faithfulness tied to our body getting us in the right place at the right time. Then there's our faith, which is tied to our soul. But then there's that supernatural faith, which is like the grain of a mustard seed, which we can have as Christians, which Jesus said, if you only had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you could say to that mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, and it would go. Now you can pray all you want and use your faith, and it's not going to go anywhere. But if it's His faith, you're walking in that manifestation, that gift of His faith, then it comes by His will, then it will move. It only works by His will. We have to put ourselves in a position where that grain of the mustard seed is His gift. So we see faith. It says one faith, but it's made up of three parts spirit, soul, and body. Faith from all three of those. Likewise, with baptisms, we need to look at the different baptisms that relate to the spirit, the soul and the body. Amen.